Welcome back to In the Queue, film conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Andrew. And going into this film, I feel like I had seen the trailer, but had forgotten everything about it. And so didn't know anything about this movie. And I was so shocked and surprised when the film ended and it said directed by Lynn Ramsey. And I was like, oh, that explains a lot of why I felt the way that I felt throughout this film. This all makes sense now. The name of this film is You Were Never Really Here. And was he ever really there in the film? There's a lot of doubt of many things in the story. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that, I'm sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh the film is You Were Never Really Here, uh, directed by Lynn Ramsey, new film starring Joaquin Phoenix that's been critically lauded. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been receiving an extremely good critical reception, but uh, audiences are certainly not flocking to this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're going to have a fun conversation about it. Before we do that, though, I want to tell you how you can find us on the web. Go to our website, www.in-the-q, that's the letter q.com. And you can find all of our posts there. You can also visit us on Facebook by searching for In The Q, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. You can comment on our posts or any of the supplement, mm-hmm. su- suppli- supplemental materials. Supplementarials. The supplementarials mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that we post. And, uh, and or you can uh, recommend any films that you would like to talk about on the podcast. And I say that you would like to talk about because we will invite you on the podcast to talk about that film with us, a film you love, a film you hate, a film that drives you insane, anything, uh, any reason at all is a valid reason to come on the show. So Mm -hmm. uh, please do that. You can also engage us on Twitter by searching for at ITQ podcast. That's our Twitter handle. And finally, you can subscribe to our podcast by searching iTunes or overcast or any of the podcast aggregating apps out there. Uh, search for In the Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. Subscribe to us, and then you'll get every episode delivered right to you. You don't even have to worry about it. Yeah. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. Wakey wakey. Eggs and bakey. <laughs> I had Sorry. eggs and bakey this morning. Did you? Was mm-hmm. Michael Madsen there? Did he pull you out of the back of a flatbed truck? Yeah, well, I mean, it's Tuesday, so. <laughs> Great. Oh, man, you, you're living the life. Uh, As I said, ladies and gentlemen, today's film is You Were Never Really Here. Where do you spend your time? What do you do? All day long. It's done. Man called. He wants to see you. State Senator Albert Vato. He doesn't want to get the cops involved. He wants to meet you. You have kids, Joe? Nina. Her name is Nina. 235 East 31st Street. I've heard of these places. If she's there, I'll get her. Cleary said you were brutal. I can be. 
see this girl? Is she inside? Security. How many are there? spoilers in that trailer there are some spoilers in that trailer but hey uh on that topic ladies and gentlemen we're likely to get into some spoilers talking about this film i think is that safe to say phil i think that is safe to say so if you haven't seen the film you might want to skip this episode for the time being go out and see the film and then come back to the episode and we it will be at that point spoiler free Yes, yeah, and I think you're probably going to have questions after you see this film. Oh, yeah. Which perhaps we will be able to provide some sort of answer. We might be able to elucidate a few things for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film, for those who do not know or may not have seen it and are still listening, uh, is about a man played by Joaquin Phoenix. His name is Joe. That's all we get from him. And he is a, a veteran who has seen some things, let me tell you, mm. who has basically parlayed a kind of miserable seeming existence and a specific skill set that he has acquired uh, into being a kind of uh, goon for hire, if you will. He's uh, He is hired by private detectives to do muscle work. Mm. Um, and... In this film, he gets hired for a job that proves to be very, very, very dangerous for him and everyone he knows. Uh, and it becomes, uh, it quickly blows up, uh, quite literally, uh, <laughs> in his face and yeah. uh, becomes unmanageable. And uh, we sort of slip into a. Uh, a revenge tale of sorts. And I won't say anything more because we're going to talk about a lot of the plot points as, as we go through this podcast. Um, but what I will say to start us off is that that revelation that I had at the end of this film, that it was Lynn Ramsey, which I, I like knew I knew in the back of my head because I had remembered when this played at festivals some time ago. Yeah, it was at Cannes a was, year ago. Uh, last year. Yeah, yeah, and was nominated for and I think won a few uh, key prizes. It sure did. It won Best Screenplay best by Lynn Ramsey and Best Actor, Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, which is uh, – he's he's marvelous in this film, and Lynn Ramsey wrote a great screenplay for this film. Um, but I had basically forgotten about the film, so when – the film has a very lyrical quality to it as all of Lynn Ramsey's films do. And at the end of the film, when her name popped up, I was suddenly like, Oh, this is why I felt both exhilarated and queasy all throughout this entire film. 
she has such a unique and interesting style. Um, sure. I'm actually kind of ashamed that I didn't instantly recognize it, but uh, I often think of the opening of We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is this like eight or 10 minute like weird tone poem without any dialogue that is like one of the most uneasy things that I've ever watched in my life. I got to say, I haven't seen We Need to Talk About Kevin, but I've seen all of her other work. And she is literally one of my favorite directors. She's incredible. Absolutely. And like, because like, I can't help it being an American and seeing mostly American films. I tend to group my directors as American and then everybody else. (laughs) And in terms of everybody else in the pantheon of world renowned directors, uh, Lynn Ramsey is definitely in my top 10 or 20. And as far as like new filmmakers go, people who put out new work is like Ingmar Bergman. I don't know if you noticed, he's not making any more films. <laughs> no, it would be very but hard for him to do that. Love Bergman, love Fellini. Although I new... will say, The Virgin Spring is finally being released on Criterion Blu-ray, and I am <laughs> so excited for it. Yeah, so he, in a way, his legacy will always. It's live true. On. It's true. But when I when I find out that Lynn Ramsey has a new film coming out, I am stoked. And oh, yeah. so, yes, well, I was, she's only made I have, four films over 20 years. Right. But she's made several shorts. Like, in fact, she she made a short. I think it's called Gas Man. That's on a uh, the DVD for Rat Catcher, which is a great little short yes, film. Yes. And uh, and of course, it's always fun and exciting when brilliant foreign directors make films within the United States. I really enjoy seeing their perspective on our country. And, and we should say that uh, Lynn Ramsey, though foreign, is Scottish. So right. an English speaker, um, naturally. So the transition um, is probably easier than a lot of directors have moving into English-speaking mm-hmm. um, filmmaking. But she's her the four films she's made are Ratcatcher. The four feature films, I should say, that she's made mm-hmm. are Ratcatcher, um, uh, Morvern Collar. Which I love. We need to talk about Kevin, and now you're never really here. Um, and this film is in at its core, it's kind of a revenge tale. It's like watching kind of a, a film noir. It is kind of a film noir. It's kind of a revenge film noir. It's like watching Taken or something like that, but decidedly different in every conceivable way. Yeah, well, the thing that really stands out to me about what makes it different is in this film, the line between what is real and what is not real is flagrantly violated for an hour and a half. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's get into that. (laughs) Let's get into that because there's a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot of not knowing what's real and what's not not only because Joaquin Phoenix can kind of walks around in a dream state or a seeming dream state all the time, um, mm-hmm. which brings up sort of, I think a lot of people have said this about this film brings up evocations of taxi driver or yeah, which I think like is that. unfortunate. You do like, yeah, I don't like the fact that they're just rather than letting it stand on its own merits. They're immediately oh, saying it's sure it's, it's just this 40 year old film, except for the new century. Like, well, 
you don't need to tie it. They're, they're both good films on their own, you know? Like, well, the only point I'm making with regard to that is that Taxi Driver exists in kind of a dream, a, a sort of a, a fetid dream state of New York where, yes. where he kind of, and especially in the end of the film, we don't really know what's real and what's not. I made a video essay about the topic. You did, and it was very good. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. As all of your video essays are. Um, no, stop, don't. <laughs> no, stop, don't. It, it, so this film definitely blurs that line a great deal more than something like Taxi Driver does. Um, yep. And consistently does it. I guess where it. the 21st century comes in. Oh, yeah, sure. Sure, because because they didn't know how to play with perspective <laughs> back in the twentieth century. Uh, yeah, it, it, man, I'll say that it's hard to know. It's hard to know what's real and what's not, and there are a few specific instances that kind of messed me up. One of those, mm-hmm. the mo- one that immediately comes to mind is there's a moment when he's drinking at a water fountain. And he's yeah. drinking, and then he turns around and he looks at a young girl who's staring at him. And then we see the camera pull back from this young girl, and we see the water fountain, and the water is going on the water fountain, but there's nobody standing there. And then it suddenly stops. He was never really there. I, ah. <laughs> but then that brings up the, the big question of... I mean, the fact that it's a young girl is probably very important because this film is about him essentially taking a hammer, quite literally, to a pedophilia ring that's running out of New York City. Yeah. Um, and having having terrible repercussions come as a result of that because the pedophilia ring that he happens to break up is uh, a political pedophilia ring, uh, mm-hmm. one that is the governor and the state senators and all that are in on. Um, yeah. And it's uh, unfortunate because he gets hired by one of the state senators because it's that state senator's daughter who has been tapped to be the prize mm-hmm. uh, of the governor in this, within this pedophilia ring. And then it, <laughs> There are lots of images of young young him, presumably, and young mm-hmm. girls that kind of flash up throughout the film, like in kind of a very hazy, kind of dreamlike, psychedelic thing. We, we hear counting down frequently uh-huh. in the voice of a young girl, in the voice of a young boy, in the voice of Joaquin Phoenix's Joe as a grown adult, um, mm-hmm. drawing <laughs> very intentional parallels i think but i don't know what what do you think phil like what do you think well, is, is real in this what's real what's not okay well i think it's mostly real but the bigger yeah. question for me is who dies and who is just imagined dead um interesting so early in the film walking phoenix is is spotted by a neighbor going into a residence. Yeah. And he immediately is upset about this because he thinks that he can be found out or discovered if somebody knows his whereabouts. Yes. And the guy that he talks to to get his money 
it's just his name is like Angel or something. Yeah. I don't remember if that's exactly it. Angel. But he, he gets his money and then he tells Angel to like fuck off. We're done. Yes. Like your your son saw me the other night. So that means we can never do business again. Now one interpretation of the film could be that after Angel's son spotted him, they gave Joe's information to somebody else. Yeah. Because because Joe's life starts to fall apart. His mother gets killed and his life is just unraveled. They come for him. Yeah. I mean they come right at him. And there's this there's a really quick shot where we see Angel and then Angel's son with a gun to their heads. Yeah. It's really fast. And but then we it, never see them again. Well, I think it specifically comes at the moment where Joe realizes the chain of events, or at least imagines that he realizes the chain of events that lead to this. It's unclear as to whether that's in his mind, Angel yeah. and his son getting killed, or whether that is actually happening as we're watching Joaquin Phoenix, as we're watching Joe you know, discover because because that's the moment when he walks in and he sees the guy who hired him is dead. Correct? He's had his hands slit open and bled all over the glass desk. Yeah, I think so. I think it happens then. Yeah, and I think like you know, up until this point in in movie history where we are now, movies like The Sixth Sense and Fight Club, they'll trick us. Sure. But then they'll show us how they tricked us. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's part of the thrill. That's part of the delight of being tricked is that, you know, you get to see how you were manipulated. And if every subsequent time you watch the film, you can look for the clues that would tip you off. But this is a film that does not reveal whether or not it's tricking you. It just keeps you in that state of, of not knowing what's real or not. Well, yeah, the the ending is of particular note there. Yeah, man. And very I hated, strange. I hated the very ending of this film. Oh, really? <laughs> the last two lines I hated. Oh, it's <laughs> terrible. I mean, I can see why it would make sense to end the film that way, but we already issued a spoiler alert, right? Yes, we have. Okay. So at the very end of this film, Joaquin Phoenix is sitting by himself and he just takes a gun and blows his fucking brains out. And at that point in the film, somebody in the theater was like, oh, shit, like out loud <laughs> in this like totally silent moment. And it was great. Yeah. But then that was apparently in his head because this girl character comes back and then it ends on this really like syrupy, sweet line. Like, it's a beautiful day. Well, and then it's like, well, I, of course, it's not a beautiful day, even if that's real. Of course, there's too much bad shit happening for it to be a beautiful day. But I, I would have loved if it had just ended with him blowing his head off like that it would have been interesting for sure um i what i got a huge laugh in the theater when the waitress came by and put the check on the table and said you know thank you so much sir whatever she says yeah, that was so interesting how she was told everybody was so indifferent to, to the him fact blowing that he his head himself well, well that's like cluing was... you into the fact that it's probably not reality right i know that but like there was blood on the pate on the check you know and sure. that was such an interesting statement i thought yeah. That here was this guy. He, this is his fucking movie. Every single frame of this movie has him in it, the main character, and he kills himself 
and the rest of the world of the film is totally indifferent. I Doesn't thought that care. was something cool. Well, that comes back to the the girl watching him or not watching him drink out of the water fountain, right? Yeah. Like, is this a world that recognizes that he exists or not? I mean, the it, it brings up an interesting recurring theme, right? Do people see him? Do they see him? You know, uh, it's a, the reason that he gets mad at angels because he thinks that his son sees him. Uh, when he comes home and his mm-hmm. mom is sleeping in front of the television, she pulls a prank on him where she doesn't notice that he's there, right? There's a lot of this theme throughout the film, not to mention the title of the film itself. Yeah. And it, it does make you start to wonder because, for instance, like it is clearly, as you say, Joe's film, but that whole last sequence that you just described really really put it put a lot of doubt in my mind that what we were watching was Joe's journey versus maybe the young girl's journey um in in a, in a in a manner of speaking because I can't think of any reason a that he would I mean maybe he's just fantasizing about killing himself that's possible uh-huh but he also is maybe he is the part of her that is able to like self-actualize and slit the throat of the governor, for instance, which is what she ends up doing, right? There's this sort of wonderfully bizarre sequence, very bizarre sequence where Joaquin Phoenix, you know, sort of takes a one man, you know, wrecking crew to this, opulent estate in the in Westchester County somewhere uh-huh. that is basically been has a room that's been set aside for having sex with little girls it's all you know uh, all of the upholstery is very young girlish they're playing these old 50 t- 50s tunes about you know being a adorable baby an angel and an angel and all that kind of stuff and then yeah. Joaquin Phoenix goes in there to do the deed and finally kill the the big guy. And we're all amped up because he's been like on a mm-hmm. tear as the audience. And then we discover that he's laying there on the ground with his throat slit. Dead, very dead. Joaquin Phoenix sits down and cries, takes off his shirt and stands up, walks through this seemingly empty, uh, building here is something in the distance follows it all of this takes an extraordinary amount of screen time by the way uh-huh um and it's a fascinating kind of again tone poem i i think lynn ramsey makes these kind of wonderful tonal films where you like yeah you just get this weird sense when you're watching she uses sound really well sound too. oh the sound design in her movies ah oh, it's insane yeah and so we he follows this noise of somebody eating uh, you know, silverware against ceramic, and he mm-hmm. finds the young girl who has been the victim of this pedophilia ring sitting there eating pieces of her uh, assaulter for dinner, <laughs> eating big, big chunks of him for dinner. And I was sitting there thinking, like, well, this is weird. They're both acting in a very strange way. Uh, 
could it be that they're the same person? And I didn't I didn't get that she was eating the flesh of her attacker. Oh, I did. There was, was there was blood all over neck? the plate. There was blood smeared all over the plate. I think she was eating part of his throat, probably. His tongue, maybe. Who knows? I don't know. That I was mean, a wide she, she cut she cut it out, carried it downstairs, put it on a plate, and ate it with a fork. I mean, that's what it looked like to me. Well, I didn't get that part, but I'm. <laughs> but at the very least, there was a there was a, a straight razor covered in blood on the table right next to her. Right, and that was that was the tip off that she was the one who who killed the guy. Well, when you were talking, it made me think about. It sounded like you might be presupposing that. Joaquin Phoenix was really a part of her. Well, I'm saying that that's, it seems to be the, the closing of the film almost seems to intimate that that's the case. Well, I mean, they have a whole, they have a whole sequence when they're trying to figure out what to do next and they just echo each other's statements. Right. Yeah. He says, what do you want to do? She's, or where do you want to go? She says, I don't know. And he says, I don't know either. You know, like they go back and forth and it seems like, it's weird, man. <laughs> It's very it's weird and it's it's not readily understood. Um, but I love one of the, it. One of the most fascinating things. Oh, you loved it? Oh yeah, I loved it. I like I, oh, I found it yeah, fascinating. I like, it. like I totally found it fascinating. I liked it a lot too. I probably loved it as well. I'll probably see it again. But um, one of the most fascinating things that I read about this movie was that how Ramsey prepared. Joaquin Phoenix for his character she gave him an audio recording of gunshots mixed with fireworks and said this is what's going on in your head all the time Wow! so he used that to build this character of this traumatized war vet mm-hmm. who was presumably in uh, the Gulf War and now he's having you know what some people would call post-traumatic stress or what, what have you mm-hmm. um, but to call it to say that like he was never really there and he was really just a part of um, the character, the girl who was kidnapped, which I'm sick of calling her the girl. <laughs> What's her name? I don't, I don't uh, remember. Looking in the credits, I don't see her name. I forget what it was. But anyway, like Nina, Nina. Yeah. Does it sound right? Nina. I don't know. But like if you look at the, the poster, the girl and Phoenix are both are a one she is within him she's in his oh. like in his torso yeah so but but just because he's the larger more dominant figure i don't think that necessarily means that she is a part of him but to i think this film is open to the interpretation that that he is a part of her um and i think that would that would jibe with ramsey's feminist slant as well sure and that's what i'm saying essentially because that's that's why I'm saying it, he is the personification of her ability to do something. Yeah. Yeah. To, to self-actualize. Um, but then, but then you got to ask, well, if he was, we, we were introduced to him before we were introduced to the girl. I mean, she probably doesn't have more than six minutes of screen time. Right. So mostly we're following this guy around. So what are we watching? What is it? What is, what is this? Okay, so where are we? Does it matter? Maybe it doesn't matter if something is real or not. I made 
Dude, <laughs> I made this whole series. Okay, I made a five episode series. Yeah. at my gig with Fandor, called "I'll Believe It When I See It." Yeah. nobody watched this. <laughs> it got like zero response. But uh, the whole series was about stuff like this, where things that we take for granted when we watch a film. There are some films, most famously Fight Club, which figures very prominently in my series. There are some films that do play with this idea of what is real and what's not real. Sure. And they'll show us things that seem real, but in the end, they end up being not real. 12 and Monkeys? Did you do 12 Monkeys in that series? Well, maybe I'll have to do an extra part. <laughs> it's going to be part seven coming up. But like, yeah, but this is like when... This is where you, when you are passively consuming a film, this is that yeah. moment when you question reality, mm-hmm. when you question whether you're seeing something that is re- real to the character as well as to the audience or only one of the two. Yeah. And I love stuff like that. And I love to think about it and parse through it. And in the case of this film, this is not like a puzzle in the way that like Fight Club is. Whereas I don't know if there is a definite answer to the questions we're seeking. Yeah. I'm not sure there is. I'm not sure there or, is. And I, I, I don't know that I've settled on how I feel about it. I think the only safe interpretation that you can really have is that this is a portrait of mental illness of a guy who's, who's losing his mind. And, and Joaquin Phoenix, like he just, he does a great job. Like I can see yeah. why he won the best actor at can, because especially in the last half hour or so of the film, his like internal conflict and confusion yeah. is really palpable. And it's, he, he dramatizes it so well. And yeah. It's such a strong result. And, and Lynn Ramsey, as we've mentioned, does such a great job with the sound design, with the visual design, like sort of getting us, I mean, the, there are moments where he has flashes of himself as a young boy, I think, or himself in combat or terrible things that he's seen that yeah. are, that are, are for be- lack of a better term, jump scares in the context of the, f- I mean, they, you jump because it's, yeah. it's these sudden loud noises and these sudden images. Uh, and, and it, it's really off putting. I mean, it really, it really uh, messes with you, and I'll also say the score by Johnny Greenwood. Oh yeah, it figures very prominently prominently in this as well because it is very unsettling. I, I mean, it's a it's a a sonic assault. It's intense. It is a really intense score. It makes me think of the uh, in a in a different way, of course, but the the Kronos Quartet score the uh, Clint Mansell score played uh-huh. by the Kronos Quartet for uh Requiem for a Dream by Darren Aronofsky yeah uh, which is <laughs> I went back and watched a little while ago because I was like man I really love that score and I remember thinking about how awful it made me feel as I was watching that film and I rewatched it again recently and I was shocked at really how effectively awful it makes you feel it is horrific it, and yeah. I don't think that people understand exactly how much that plays into it. Like the sound design or the score really gets under your skin. It really can do sure. wonders. And and Lynn Ramsey is a master at this. Yeah. Well, you know, she graduated from an actual film school. 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, she's she's been trained in in using the audio as well as the the visual. So, uh, I think she's one of those directors like Paul Thomas Anderson or Tarantino whose films become an event. Yeah. And when they when that film comes out, it's a big deal. Um, especially because she's such an infrequent filmmaker. I mean, there was like yeah. a nine-year gap between her second and third films. Yeah, and and between this and we need to talk about Kevin, it's been at least five or six years, right? Yeah, it has so, been. A pretty substantial amount of time. Um, yeah, and, and, and she's one of these filmmakers that, that doesn't get, I think, a fair shake necessarily because she does make films infrequently and she does make films that are not mainstream by any stretch of the imagination, but she is as much an auteur as any of those names that you just mentioned. Um, yeah. It's, it's just, <laughs> as I said, like maybe I didn't recognize it as I was watching the film, but as soon as it came up at the end, I was like, Oh my God, all of this makes sense. <laughs> all of it. Yeah. Well, so we've talked about the sound. We've talked about Greenwood's score. Yeah. Um, this movie, one thing that I really liked about Morvern Collar mm-hmm. is... Is Samantha Morton and how amazing she is? Yeah. But also, <laughs> you know how I love music in movies and how yeah. much I love like uh, actual like rock music, for example. Sure. And uh, Morvern Collar is full of great music used in a very impactful way. Like there's a scene where she plays this very odd Velvet Underground song called I'm Sticking With You, mm. which is one of the few songs sung by their drummer. And it's like this weird kind of like uh, cheerful tune. And she plays it while we watch the main character dismember her husband's corpse. Right. You know, and like I, I love that kind of counterpoint use of music well in uh but at the same time as with like the best of these people like scorsese and whatnot at the end of the day if it's done well the song is there because it's just a badass song to listen to (laughs) during that particular scene so in in this movie she does something really cool where uh rather than show joaquin phoenix infiltrate this sex house full of pedophiles in a traditional way Mm. she opts to to cover it by switching between the black and white overhead security cameras that are throughout the the structure in the hallway and so she's cutting in between those those cameras while we're hearing uh you're just like an angel but creepy but you know in 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 utter 21st century fashion rather than just lay the song over the entire montage it keeps stuttering it yeah. gets interrupted every yeah. time we cut to a new angle from a different security yeah. camera and that kind of prevents us from enjoying it and also keeps us on edge the way yes. she's been doing the whole time. Yes. Yeah, it's and so this is, good. This movie is it's like barely even an hour and a half. And I love movies that are an hour and a half. I fucking love them. They're so great. <laughs> this and Tully were just like, oh, I love you. I'm so sick of Marvel movies that are two hours and forty minutes long. I I like a good three hour movie when it's you know, something like Heat or Once Upon a yeah, Time in America. Or David or, Lean or somebody who's really yeah. knows what they're doing. Yeah, uh, 
Once Upon a Time in the West. That's three hours. Ooh, that's glory. That is glory. I wonder if uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will be three hours. Oh, maybe, maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, how long was Hateful Eight? It was like two hours and 40 minutes or something. Yeah, I saw the Roadshow version, which was almost three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah, well, anyway, I mean, I think maybe if you're, if you're a cinephile, if you're a filmmaker, you might be you might fall in the camp of people that gave this movie such a high meta score. Yeah. If you're just a general moviegoer, you might be one of the people who gives this a seven out of 10. Yeah. But I'll, I'll also put it out there that I think that this is a perfect example of a badass female director who is killing it, just utterly killing it and not necessarily getting the recognition that they deserve. You know, it's all well and good that everybody wants to, congratulate Patty Jenkins for making a movie like Wonder Woman, but I'd much rather people be watching films like this or films by Jane Campion or, you know, uh, any number of, of excellent filmmakers out there who happen to also be women. Um, Mm -hmm. And don't, (laughs) I mean, just looking at the film itself, you might not feel like it was uh, because it's very violent. It's very dark. um, Mm -hmm. It's about a, dude bro uh a soldier an ex-soldier uh-huh. uh but it is it has a decidedly uh feminist influence feminist bent to it as you as you were saying earlier phil and mm-hmm. lynn ramsey makes some of the most fascinating and distinctive films out there and even if you don't always like the film like i didn't love uh, we need to talk about Kevin. It wasn't my favorite of her films, but uh-huh. I still found it to be an absolutely fascinating piece. And she's really making some of the most interesting movies out there right now. And I think that uh, it, they deserve to be seen. So get out there and yeah. see them, people. Yeah, really. Um, I would recommend this film to anybody. If you like our show, you probably share some of our tastes. <laughs> yeah. And I would encourage you not to be daunted by the 7.0 rating, but look more towards that 84 Metascore and be like, yeah, dude, like this movie is really good. Yeah. And if you like movies, then there's a lot to like here. And yes, it's extremely dark and it is violent, although not as violent as it could have been. A lot of the violence happens. It just it happens before we actually get there. Yeah. And a Um, lot of it even happens off screen. I mean, we see him swing a hammer and then we don't see it connect. So in that sense, the violence isn't there, but we do see a lot of pools of blood. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And I think that, um, I was also definitely responding to, to Phoenix's performance and he's become one of my favorite actors. Sure. And he really, he does a good job with the aggression and I guess it's like maybe a stereotype that, you know, women filmmakers don't necessarily make films about male aggression. Um, but in this case, I think Lynn Ramsey handles this issue uh, tough as nails. Well, and and uh, I think that women often handle that particular issue better than men do. <laughs> yeah, because she also not only does she show it from his perspective, but she also shows the in a way the error of it or yeah. like the 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 fact that that it's bad to put it bluntly. the senselessness of it yeah yeah so like she kind of catches us 
getting into it and maybe deriving some satisfaction from this guy who's like a vigilante mm-hmm. who's re- liberating girls in, in a violent way. Like, yes, of course, I, I have to admit I was rooting for him and I was really kind of jazzed that he was going on this badass quest. But at the same time, her camera also shows that, you know, violence is is not fun and games. Yeah, well, and don't forget that we are she also robs us of the conventional climax to this kind of story arc, right? Where we see the person finally confront the the big bad guy and and have a have it out with them, right? Yeah. Um, who incidentally in this film is played by Alessandro Nivola, who I really like a lot. Um mm-hmm. even though he's got like 2 minutes of screen time, maybe less. And yeah. uh like we're we're robbed of that moment, and in fact, that moment is then only sort of passively as, ascribed to the primary female character in the film, uh, mm-hmm. outside of his mother. Uh, so I think that there's there's definitely something in that as well in in her stealing that moment from the audience, right? In a way, she she inverts it, and yeah. the climax becomes. Joe turning violence on himself. Yeah, yeah. And he shoots himself, and then that's kind of the big cathartic moment at the end. You know, like, it's weird because in in many other cases of, of films that twist this idea of what's real and what's not real, I, I do want some kind of an explanation. But in this case, I'm fine not knowing. Uh, I'm I fine am too. Just yeah. to kind of look at this as a film, as a work of art. Uh, you know, like it's so good at, at conveying a mood through visuals and through sound. I'm kind of okay just experiencing it and not knowing really if there is an explanation. It's 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 weird, and I and I sure. also feel like with this show that we do, I often feel obligated to have the answers <laughs> to give to our listeners. But in this case, this is just. It's just like what I would call cinema. It's just a uh... sorry listeners. <laughs> yeah, right. What a cop out. It's cinema, folks. You either get it or you don't. Um, so I, I, I think it's a fascinating movie, and uh, I do too. I, I, I don't know. You know, people thought at Cannes last year that this was this had a shot at the Palm Door, but instead, uh, the Square won out. Yeah. And I I like this film better than the square. I think uh, this is this is just a more my cup of tea. Khan is running right now, by the way, as we record this. Shit, I'm late. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll be curious to see what uh, wins this year. There's two American films in contention: Spike Lee's Black Klansman and mm-hmm. uh, the new film from uh, what's his name? Who did uh, David Robert Mitchell? David Robert Mitchell, who did uh, It Follows. Uh, which yeah. is called Under the Silver Lake that I'm very excited about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, did you notice, Phil? I Maybe I was reading into this, but when Joe sets his mother's eyeglasses on the side table, I read it as an homage to Straw Dogs, which oh. incidentally, because it's because the her left a lens is broken into pieces because she's been shot in the face and mm. it's, it only has been broken into pieces. And that's exactly what the cover of straw dogs is. The, 
you see. Well, well, that's uh, that's not just that film though that they that she could be evoking. Sure. Uh, you could also say that it's Doctor Zhivago. True. There's that scene where mm-hmm. Pasha, the uh, the revolutionary, charges forth in, into battle, and then we cut to a shot of his glasses falling in the snow with a big bullet hole through one right lens. Through one of them. It also reminded me of uh, Battleship Potemkin. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's probably just those two specifically, but um, David Lean again. David Lean, folks. Yeah, he's David great. Lean. He's the best. Uh, I also thought that it may have a Straw Dogs connection only because Straw Dogs is kind of a masculine revenge fantasy. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's you know it's about a man who feels emasculated and he's trying to reclaim his his masculinity and can only do so by defending his his woman and his own honor you know by there, barricading there himself will be and, no violence against this house yes um i love that film <laughs> but I, I thought that might be an interesting connection and i don't know if it's intentional or not of course but i wouldn't be surprised because lynn ramsey is a very smart director um because well, this can, is this is handle. a she can handle those themes and she can handle that kind of brutality. She certainly can. Uh, but this film itself is kind of a masculine revenge fantasy, but kind of turned on its head. And as I said before, with the the typical catharsis for that type of film kind of pulled out from under us. So I wonder if it isn't kind of a, a little wink and a nod to the audience. Well, I think it's also evoking some some classic film noir tropes. Like, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the if you were to consider Phoenix as a detective of some kind or some kind of an anti-hero who finds out that he, he gets paid to do a job or to kill a guy, and then he finds out that he's been double-crossed. He's in and, over his head, yeah. Yeah, he's in over his head, and like, it reminds me of Vertigo, even, you know? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, and, like, what is real? What's the truth? after I, who, did, who did I really serve in my quest and ha- it happens in many films yeah uh, it happens in brian de palma's work yeah it happens in uh i mean this is the 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 hitchcock. the hitchcock the visual aesthetics of this movie are not like a traditional film noir but the the story i think is yeah reminiscent sure. although i will say that i'm so happy I, I feel like we're moving out of this period of filmmaking where everything has been handheld for like the last 10 or so years. <laughs> I, I feel like filmmakers are starting to put their cameras on tripods again. And I think the cinema is benefiting from that in every conceivable way. Uh, Paul Greengrass, right? Yeah. Paul Greengrass ruined it with the born ultimate or born, whatever the first one was born identity. Mm. Um, I was like ultimatum supremacy. Huh? (laughs) Nope. Identity. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I feel like maybe it's just the last few films that I've seen, but I, there's been very precious little handheld stuff and it makes me very happy because I think handheld filmmaking is so lazy and it is really only good if you're going for that kind of cinema verite feel. And yeah, it that's rarely how it's used. <laughs> well, I think too often people will assume that if you use a handheld camera, the truth will emerge as Errol Morris says, you know, like if you're, yeah. 
if you're making a film based on a true story, you should use a handheld camera because it makes things seem more honest or more real, which it's just not true. Yeah. Uh, we've got a upcoming episode where we talk about the stellar tripod camera work of a Colombian film yes. called Embrace of the Serpent. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. I think that Lynn Ramsey has this very strong command of her craft. No question. And uh, she's she's on point. Yeah. Well, okay. I think that overall, I really like this film. It's, Likewise, it's a standout so far of 2018, and I, I think that if I if I have a chance, I may even see it again in theaters just to kind of get that experience, and and maybe a second viewing will yield some more insights. Yeah. That we can perhaps share on our Facebook page. Yes, indeed. I also recommend the film. I think it's a very interesting piece. Uh, if you want easy answers, you're not going to find them here, so you might want to look elsewhere. Uh, but as far as an interesting, challenging, unusual work of cinema goes, I think this is a great example. And um, I, the only thing that I want from it is more films from Lynn Ramsey. That's yeah. really all I need. Word. Well, that's our episode about You're Never Really Here. Stay tuned for our next episode. It's going to be another listener's choice. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the film Embrace of the Serpent, as I mentioned. And we're very excited. We're going to have a new guest on the program, yes. Leticia. is going to join us from Montreal to talk about this film. So we're super excited about that. So stay tuned. We'll see you then.